So, last river of life. Kind of sad, but anyways. We have uh, just had a great time uh, in God's Word. I thought it'd be good. Does anybody remember what's on your shirt? What verse is on the River of Life shirt for 2015? Philippians 1, what? 127. That's actually where we... Is it on there? Yeah. All right. So uh, that's right where we began, right? Four weeks ago, uh, Austin Duncan uh, taught out of Philippians 1, and I thought I'd read this again. Um, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponent. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that you, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So if you remember uh, what Austin challenged us with, with is standing firm in the gospel and also suffering for the gospel. That we're not promised an easy life as a believer. That's not the promise of God. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that we're saved from our sin, right? And that now we have a relationship with God because we've been forgiven and we have a right standing before God. So we want to stand firm in that and then be willing to suffer for the gospel. Week two, we had Jared Torres, um, and he took us to a passage in Luke, and it's uh, a familiar passage. Um, and this is uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he, being Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Then it says this, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So if you remember what Jared challenges us with that, in, that night is as a believer and as you contemplate um, the message of the gospel that God has sent his own son to save sinners and that if we would place our faith in him, we would be forgiven. That that doesn't just end there, right? That isn't just a belief that you just agree with, but it actually changes your life, right? That you would be willing and that you would take up your cross daily and deny yourself and follow God. So that was a charge to be all in for the gospel, right? That it's not something that we um, just mentally believe in. We kind of put a checkbox on our Sundays and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church, but it's a real call to be all in for God and to sell, um, sell out for him and deny yourself. The last, last Thursday, we were in another familiar passage, um, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the, the way and the truth and the life, right? No one comes to the, to the father except through me. That was Jesus' words. And Steve Leston challenged us with the gospel is a message from Christ, from the only man that has lived on the face of this earth that has lived a perfect life, right? That he is fully God and fully man and that there is no other way to the Father. There was no other way for him other than the cross to provide our way uh, so that we can be forgiven, right? So now that's the third week. We're gonna uh, bring up Dominic Avila and he's going to teach us out of Luke 7, I believe, probably, I'm guessing, 
on the topic of forgiveness. So let's welcome up Dominic Avila. He comes from Monterey, and I think there's like, he has a tribe of followers from Santa Clarita. Am I right, Dominic? Well, there's a couple, yeah. Okay, a couple around. And uh, I asked Dominic some, what would be some interesting things about his life. And this guy can play chess like no other. Uh, he played uh, college basketball, right? For yeah. Masters College. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's cool, right? And uh, one thing I asked him, you know, I asked him, I said, well, what's interesting about your life? What's, what's kind of a noteworthy? And he said, really, I'm just kind of ordinary. I'm not, you know. Kind of nothing. But you know, as I thought about that, Dominic, I thought it'd be really cool to speak of the one event in your life that changed your life and that God caused a dead heart to beat sure, spiritually. Yeah. So I thought that might be a, a good way that's to... A, that's a brutal question to start off with. Yeah. Um, so maybe just share, maybe we'll share a little sure. bit of your testimony, how God saved you, and then sure, lead sure. us into Luke. So yeah. appreciate you coming. Okay. Thank you. Well, let me first say it's such an honor to be here because, uh, man, Pastor Scott, who is your pastor, is a man that I love and look up to. And so when he says, hey, would you be willing to come? Absolutely. I'd love to do that. I came and spoke several months ago and really enjoyed my time. And this is just a great environment, a great place to be. Are you, you going to tackle me? No. no? Okay, kidding. good. I would never <laughs> tackle this guy. Are you kidding me? Don't um, <laughs> So yeah, let me let me tell you a little bit about myself, uh, just so you can kind of get to know me. Um, I grew up. Oh, that's perfect. I grew up in uh, in East Los Angeles. Um, some people say they grew up in the hood, but they don't mean that. I grew up in the hood. Uh, the Madavia Projects is where I come from, and uh, well, this is how it all started for me. I grew up in a very crazy family environment. My mom and dad never got married. I had all kinds of brothers and sisters, all from different um, women, uh, because my dad was not very faithful. Um, but man, I, I love my dad, and he just made a lot of mistakes. And so growing up, I um, was heavily influenced by my brother. My brother's name uh, was Bryce, and uh, he taught me how to play basketball. He taught me how to respect my mom. Such a good guy. And when did the Lord really grab my heart? He grabbed my heart when my brother died. He got into a motorcycle accident. He was 19, I was 12, and my world just shattered because he was my dad figure. He was my best friend. He was uh, everything to me. And that was the first time that I even considered death. I don't think I ever thought about it before then until someone that close to me passed away. And so I'll tell you that I went into some serious depression as a 12-year-old. I didn't go to school for a couple weeks. I was terrified about what happens after you die. And then uh, one of my mom's friends just loved her well and brought her to church. And my mom wanted me to come and I did not want to wake up on Sundays because that's when I watched basketball. And so I resisted that. But uh, after a period of time, I had some friends who also loved me well and brought me to church. And then I got exposed to the gospel when I was in ninth grade. Uh, I said a bunch of prayers. I raised my hand a number of times. And I went to church and youth group, but I never really committed myself to the Lord, never really surrendered my life until uh, I was 19, no, 20 years old. My mom came down with breast cancer. It's like a big, bad story, right? Like, this guy's depressing me. My mom came down with breast cancer when I was 20 years old, and she, um, she was really close to death. She had it back in 1984, again in 2000. And uh, there was times where I'd come home from junior college, which was right down the street in East L.A., and I didn't know if my mom was alive. Knock on the door, no answer. 
knock on the door again, no answer. I'd bust through the door, shake my mom, and she would be unresponsive at times. Um, the chemotherapy was really kicking her butt. And so I remember just going into my room and, and not knowing what to do, being terrified that I was going to, I've already lost my, my brother. My dad hasn't been around very much, uh, as much as I wanted him to be. And now my mom is on the verge of death. And those, those kind of things sober you up real quick. When you lose family like that, when you start to consider, why, why am I even here? Why does life have to be like this? And so a lot of questions I started asking, and I actually got on my knees and started praying. And the thing that changed me, the transformation took place when I opened up my Bible, and I just wanted answers. And so I started reading and reading and reading and reading, and I haven't stopped reading since. I fell in love with the Word of God. More specifically, I fell in love with Jesus Christ. He is beautiful to me. And so I said, this is the man that I want to follow. And the Lord kind of worked everything out for me to go and play basketball at the Master's College. That was a big godsend because I wanted to go play ball. I wanted to honor my brother. I wanted to honor my mom. I wanted to go play in the NBA. That was my big dream. And the Lord provided uh, a scholarship for me to play basketball. And that's when I changed my major to Bible. And that's kind of been the road I've been on since 2001. So I'm currently teaching uh, at a church called Cypress Community. I'm a college and high school pastor, and I also teach equipping classes. So this, this is who I hang out with every week, uh, people your age. And it's a privilege again, like I said, to be here. Um, let me tell you a little bit more about where I'm at now. I've got a family. Uh, I've got my beautiful wife, Jessica, that I met at Masters, and I've got two little children with one on the way. Um, my little baby boy, his name is Titus Justice. I had to give him a real strong name so he'd be a big, strong boy. And uh, my little daughter, Michaela Joy, uh, they're the joys of my life. And I had to leave them uh, this morning because we're going down to Masters and they're taking care of a bunch of stuff. But this morning, man, we were playing basketball together in the garage and uh, having lots of fun. In fact, I've already said this, basketball was my thing growing up. And I remember in elementary school, uh, this was my desire. I was going to be an NBA basketball player for sure. But the school didn't do a good job of encouraging that because every door had uh, the statistics of what the percentage of people uh, make it to the NBA. So it's like 3% of high school basketball players make it to college. So I didn't even really know math back then, but that didn't sound very good, 3%. And then it's 1% of those people that actually make it into the NBA. And again, I'm, mm, that's not looking good for me. So my backup plan, if I didn't make it to the NBA, was to be a ninja. I, I know it sounds a little absurd, but I figured maybe I can actually do that. I fell in love with ninjas when I was young um, because I watched ninja movies. And there was this one ninja movie that I watched that uh, had this guy, it was the American ninja, so it's kind of like the, the American version of it, but it was still sweet. The weapons were super cool, like the ninjutsu was super cool, but the thing that I really loved is Homeboy put a blindfold on and started beating people up while he had this blindfold on. So you, you can imagine what I did when I'm a elementary boy. I did what any elementary boy would do. I paused my VHS. You guys know what that is? <laughs> so I paused my VHS, and I grabbed a blindfold, and I put that thing on, and I went outside into my backyard, and I started doing my stuff on my dog. Oh, man, I remember those days. I loved that. I loved the idea of being a blind ninja until the following week when I went to school and there was this project. It was like a learn what it's like to be disabled. And so when it was my turn to pick from the hat, guess what I pulled? 
blindness. So I was like, dope, I'm going to show everyone how much I've been practicing, how I, I've increased my ninja skills from last week. So I pull this thing, blindness, sweet, put the blindfold on, and I'm showing kids what I can do, you know. And it was cool for about five minutes. And then it was like, wait a second, they want me to do this all week at school. And I made it to about recess. And when I had to start walking around and doing things without being able to see, man, it was so terrifying to me. I don't know, have you ever felt that? Like being in complete pitch darkness and not knowing where you're at and feeling around? Well, I learned at a really young age that not being able to see is a serious issue. Not being able to see is actually terrifying. I'm colorblind, which isn't the same. It's not as bad. It's a little embarrassing, and I get made fun of, especially with my wife, because I walk outside and I don't match. Colorblindness isn't as bad, but there's something about colorblindness, because my wife and I, we can look at the same thing, but we don't see the same thing. And it's always terrified me, this idea, I've been terrified of death, and I've been terrified of being blind. Just recently, um, last month actually, I started having some issues with my eyes. And I noticed it first when I was driving home from church. As I'm driving home, my eyes got real sensitive, and they started tearing up. And it got to the point where my eyes were actually shutting on me while I'm driving. So I had to pull over because I had no idea what was going on. And I called my wife and I said, babe, something's wrong with me. My, I, can't, I can't really see. My eyes are shutting on me. I don't want them to shut, but they're just shutting on me. Well, I went to see the optometrist and he took a look at my eyes and he said, uh, Dom, you got a serious issue. I can't tell you what it is because I can't pronounce it, but I'll just call it jacked up eyelash syndrome. My bottom eyelashes are growing in like that rather than growing out. So my eyelashes are scratching my eyes and it's become a problem. And he told me, he said, if you don't, if you don't take some medication and if you don't get this fixed, which means he had to pluck them all out right there and there, um, you, you can go blind. And man, I got so terrified. And so I don't know what the, what the Lord was doing. Maybe, maybe he was preparing me to come and speak to you because the thing that I wanted to speak to you about is not blindness physically, but blindness spiritually. The most terrifying thing in the world is to be spiritually blind, to be spiritually in the dark. So what I want to do is I want to take you to a passage that's going to expose this idea of spiritual blindness. Um, and I think the passage of Scripture is going to help us see that the worst thing in the world is to be spiritually blind. Why? Because we can all look at Jesus, but we might see something different. I've got a lot of non-Christian family, a lot of non-Christian friends, they don't see Jesus the same way I do. I talk about, I think he's beautiful. I think he's wonderful. I think he's worth giving my life for. And they think I'm absolutely crazy. We're looking at the same thing. We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at the gospel. It's beautiful to me, but they don't see it like that. And for the believer, it's not just the non-believer. For the Christian, I think sometimes we struggle with this because we put spiritual blinders on our eyes called sin, and we can't see Jesus clearly. The Bible says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And how difficult is that for us Christians to actually do that because we've got blinders on us and we don't see Jesus for who he actually is. So my, my big passion is I don't want to look at Jesus from a distance. I don't want to just know things about Jesus. I study a lot of the Bible. I don't, I don't care about just knowing stuff about him. And I don't want to hear him faintly. When it comes to my understanding of the scriptures, man, I want to, 
I want to be with Jesus. I want to see him. And I want it to be intimate. I want it to be personal. I want to hear him so as to obey, so as to be faithful. That's the kind of relationship I want to have. And I think there's a big key for us here in Luke chapter 7. So let's read the text. Um, It's found in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and we're going to read through 50. And then after we read the text, I'm going to pray for us. Does that sound good? Let's do it. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, if you have a Bible. And starting in verse 36. God's word says this. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, You've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who's this man that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me pray for us as we get into the word. Oh, our great God and Father, we are grateful for life. We are grateful for your grace and goodness in our lives, how you have revealed yourself to us through your word. You have, um, you've blessed us, Lord, here with your presence, being able to worship being able to sing these songs, remind ourselves of truth, offer you the praise that you deserve. And Lord, you you seek a heart that is hungry and that desires to learn and to be humble and submissive. And so Lord, I pray that you would bend our wills to yours, that you would humble us before your word, that we would recognize it as holy, authoritative, perfect, and beautiful. And Lord, we want to see more than just how great your word is, we want to see the Jesus that is displayed in your word. So give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, let me help you out just to to understand the text a little bit. The context of Luke 7, because we're kind of jumping in at the end of the chapter, the context is really all about the passion, the compassion of Jesus. Not just the compassion of Jesus, but also his power to heal and his power to forgive. So if you were to look at the first couple verses, uh, verses 1 through 10, we see that there's this centurion servant who is sick and he's dying. And Jesus has compassion on him and he saves his life. And then you go to 11 
through 17, you have this widow and Jesus heals her heartache, a widow who's already lost her husband and now she's got a son who has died. And Jesus has compassion on her and raises her son from the dead. And then we see these sweet, sweet words from Jesus. His cousin, John the Baptist, is in prison and he's waiting to die. He knows he's going to die. He's been faithful to preach and teach and prepare people for Jesus. And people didn't like that. And so they put him in prison and now he's waiting to die. And Jesus says this in verse 22. Go and report to John what you've seen and what you've heard that the blind receive their sight, that the lame walk, that lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised, and that the poor have the gospel preached to them. Man, I don't know where you guys are at, but when I look at this here, I see a very compassionate, loving, merciful Savior. That's who Jesus is. That's how the Bible describes Jesus. In every story, in every parable, in everything, culminates in this is what i want you to see this is what this bible is for it points to how awesome jesus is he came to this earth to show us that he left heaven he left heaven perfect fellowship with the father perfect fellowship with the spirit he put on flesh he suffered a horrendous death so that he would come and seek and save the lost that was his mission that's how luke presents jesus in his gospel and that is the greatest news in the world. By far the greatest news in the world. But it's only great news if you realize one thing. If you realize that you can't see that clearly on your own. If you realize that you're actually lost and you need to be found. See, because if you don't think you're lost, you don't think you need to be found, then you don't need Jesus. You have no Savior. The Pharisees, during Jesus' day, they rejected God's diagnosis of them. He would say that you're poor, you're blind, you're lame, you're oppressed, you need to be set free, you need truth, but they rejected all that. In chapter 7, verse 30, it says this about the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the experts in the Mosaic law, they rejected God's purpose for themselves. And then it adds this, not having been baptized by John. What was John's baptism all about? Preparation. Prepare yourself for the Messiah. Get yourselves ready. Repent from your sins. Turn from your foolish and evil ways. And yet the Pharisees, they rejected all of that. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't want John's message. And that's what he says in verses 32 through 34. Jesus says this, The Pharisees are like children who sit in the marketplace and they call to one another and say, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. But the Son of Man, he's, he's come, he's eating and drinking. You say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it really didn't matter who the message came from. Jesus was dealing with guys who were blind, women who were blind. They didn't want the message. They didn't want the good news. Why? Because they didn't think that they needed any good news. You cannot respond to the gospel. You cannot respond to the offer of salvation if you don't recognize that by nature we are blind. The Pharisees, the biggest problem was they didn't consider themselves sinners. You know the word Pharisee, what that means? Anyone know? Pharisee is a separated one. It comes from the Hebrew word. They are separated. But the sad reality is that in all of their zeal to separate themselves from sinners, in all of their zeal to separate themselves from sin, 
They just imposed harsh, legalistic, impossible demands for people who really wanted to know God. They were stumbling blocks. They prevented people from knowing God. And what's even worse is for all of their apparent zeal for God, they didn't realize that God was actually standing right in front of their face. And he was conversing with them on a daily basis. And he was teaching them. And he was performing miracles in front of them, but they just could not see. Jesus was not beautiful in their eyes. They were easy, or they were real good at pointing fingers at people because they were the bigger sinners. They were unwilling to admit that they had sin. And so my question to you is, do you guys recognize that? Do you recognize that you are sinners? That you have dishonored God? Do you recognize that you have not lived the way that God has desired you to live in a lot of ways? That's a good starting point. You have to understand that you are a sinner. There's this parable that Jesus tells of a Pharisee and a tax collector in Luke 18. The, the Pharisee was off standing to the side and he was too busy praying to himself. It said he was praying to God, but he was really praying to himself and saying, I'm so happy, I'm so thankful that I'm not like these guys, like the prostitutes, like the adulterers, like the sinners, like the homosexuals, and like that tax collector over there. And he starts listing all the things that he does, how he fasts and how he prays. But then you have the tax collector who's standing all the way in the back and he's beating his chest and he's weeping and he's not even willing to look up to heaven and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's that tax collector who recognizes his sin who walks away justified, not the self-righteous Pharisee. Dr. MacArthur, he says, the most unredeemable of all is the one who doesn't think he needs redemption. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you're in big trouble. I know it's not a popular thing to say. People don't want to hear that they're sinners. Man, that is the greatest news, right? Before you hear the great news, you got to hear the bad news, and they're coupled together. I needed to hear that I was a wretched sinner before I could embrace Christ. So that, to me, was good news because I didn't think I was. We all need to understand that we are great sinners. And I want you to consider, do you look more like the Pharisee who thinks you have no need for salvation, no need for forgiveness, no need for someone to come and intercede for you? Are you like the Pharisees who like, who like to be made much of? You like the respect? You like people to elevate you? You like to elevate yourself? That's a scary place to be. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're like a Pharisee, if you're like these religious people during Jesus' day, you have no heaven. There is no guarantee of eternal life. In fact, what they have waiting for them is damnation. The Pharisees were really a sad group, and it's ironic because they spent their entire lives focused and determined to separate themselves from sinners, and all they did was separate themselves from their Savior. You're going to get some uh, questions afterwards, and I want you to think about this and think about it critically. When you evaluate your life, your lifestyle, your interactions on a day-to-day -day basis, thinking about today, do you really recognize yourself as desperate and needy? Do you see yourselves as desperate and needy? I think we, too often, we delude ourselves and we think we're fine without Jesus and we're not willing to bow the knee to him. People who don't bow the knee to him are blind, broken, and destitute. 
And I have to ask, are you more like a Pharisee? Because if you don't bow the knee, then you'll be like them. They called him Beelzebul. They called him the devil. They called him a bastard. They called him a blasphemer. And so it's not like you're just, you've, you can't see anything. And you, you don't have an opinion about Jesus. No, if you can't see anything, you're opposed to Jesus. There's only one thing that will keep you out of heaven. There's, it's, all, it's super popular today. It's all over my Facebook. You know, people are always talking about this homosexual issue. And I have to tell people all the time, man, it's not your homosexuality that's going to damn you to hell. It's unforgiven sin. It's pride. It's not recognizing your need for a savior. The homosexual issue, we, we can deal with that. We can talk about that later. But are you willing to humble yourselves and recognize that you need to be saved from sin? Because if you don't, no, no sense in fixing exterior things. You need to fix the heart. You need to recognize your sin. Well, the Pharisees during Jesus' day, they, they didn't consider those things. They were proud. They were self-righteous. And that's detestable to God. You think about this. If Jesus had to leave heaven, leave that fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, and he came to heaven to die... What are we saying when we say we don't need you? We're spitting on his face. We're spitting in God's face and saying this plan of redemption and salvation, it's not necessary. You didn't need to do that. I could have got to heaven on my own. And so it is despicable. It is a great dishonor to God to say, I'm fine just the way that I am. I don't need Jesus. You can have Jesus. I don't need him. Well, my question is, as we look at this interaction between Jesus and Simon and this woman, is Simon like all the other Pharisees, right? Because he's actually invited Jesus into his house. He wants to have some interaction with him. Is he different than all the other Pharisees? Because there were some Pharisees that were, that were, um, that were cool with Jesus. There was Nicodemus. Nicodemus seems to be a genuine seeker. But for the majority, most of the Pharisees, they hated him. They thought he was a sinner. They thought he was a friend of sinners. And they thought he deserved a sinner's punishment. Let's take a look at the, the story here. Look at verse 36. It says now that they're reclining at the table. Simon invites Jesus into his home to recline at the table. And you have to understand this because this is way different. Actually, this is kind of cool because you guys are laying down here. Some of you hopefully are you're with me there still. So they're reclining at the table. This is the way they eat. This is totally foreign to the way that I grew up. Okay, I didn't lie down and eat. Uh, I was... With my TV tray right in front of the TV, I was eating all by myself. That's how it worked when I grew up. But this is much more intimate. This is like a time of relaxation. Uh, I just want to hurry up and eat my food, give me some fast food, and let me go to the entertainment. During this time, the first century, when they had meals, that was the entertainment. Enjoying food together, fellowshipping with one another, having good conversation. The other thing I want you to notice is that in this scene here, it's not a private meal. It's not just Simon and Jesus. Uh, in the first century, this is kind of the social custom where you invite people into your house or it's just kind of expected. It's an open door policy. So while they're having this meal, people are coming in. And especially because Jesus is popular, he's been doing crazy things. He's been healing. He's been teaching. People are kind of flooding in to Simon's house, especially if it's after the synagogue. There's like this big feast and uh, they usually had leftovers for people who come in. So I want you just to envision what's going on here. They're laying down. There's a, a big meal. There's lots of people there. They're just kind of lined up against the walls. They want to hear what Jesus is talking about. And so we have in verse 37 this unexpected guest. And I want you to notice that verse 37 begins with, and behold. 
My English translation doesn't have that, but it's actually there in the original language. And the reason why Luke says, and behold, is because he wants to shock us. Yo, check this out. Look at what happens here. Check this out. As they're eating, as they're dining together, in walks this sinful woman. Now, the text doesn't say that she's a prostitute. It says she's a sinner. But most commentators, they agree that this is kind of synonymous. You say a woman, she's a sinner. She's an immoral woman. She's probably a prostitute. So in walks this prostitute. If she wasn't selling her body, then she was probably sleeping around, doing nasty stuff, right? So that's the image that you have in your head. Religious leaders, Jesus, all these people watching what's going on. And in walks this immoral woman. And the crazy thing, too, we get this little detail is that she's a familiar one. How do I know that? Because the text says that she's from the city. So I think there's probably people there like, oh, no. They may have had some of her services. They may have had some interaction with her that they shouldn't have had. They definitely knew who she was because she was well known in that city. She had a reputation. She was what we don't like to say, but what people think, oh, what a whore. Well, what a slut. Girls, do you want that kind of reputation? Known as a slut, a whore, someone who's loose? You have to get into that emotion. You have to feel what this girl is feeling because it took a lot of courage for her to go into this environment. Because what's the consequence? She's sleeping around. She's a prostitute. You have all these religious leaders that hate sinners. They could have just dragged her out of there, kicked her out, embarrassed her, made her feel miserable. I wonder what that walk was like to Simon's house as she's making her way. What is she thinking about? Man, are they going to gonna beat me up? Are they going to pull me out and stone me? People were getting stoned at this time for lots of immoral things. But she gets the courage to make a beeline. Why does she go? Because Jesus is there. Simple as that. Jesus is there. Now, we don't know who this woman is. Uh, there's all kinds of speculation about who she is. She's unnamed, so I think let's not try to figure out what her name is if it doesn't say her name. People get this a little confused with John chapter 12. There's a Mary of Bethany who comes and anoints Jesus. But that is for a totally different occasion, on a, in a totally different location, for a totally different purpose. This is different. We don't know who this woman was, but everyone there knew exactly who she was. Jesus knew who she was. So why, why is she interrupting this meal? Why, why risk all the ridicule? Why risk the dirty stares, all the scorn, all these people talking about her? She goes because I believe she had an encounter with Jesus. I believe that she's going there to honor him, to love him, to demonstrate that she's actually seen him for who he is. She can see clearly. Why do I think that she's had an encounter with Jesus already? Look at verses 47 and 48. It says, For this reason, Jesus speaking, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. 
That's in the perfect tense, which means that the forgiveness of her sins has already taken place. She's already experienced forgiveness. She's already experienced regeneration. And now she's responding to that. It's something that happened in the past. And now this act that we see here is not her receiving forgiveness, but responding to this forgiveness. So I believe she already had an encounter with Jesus. And she was overwhelmed with love and gratitude. And she wanted to express that because she has been saved. She's been redeemed. She has been justified. She has been given newness of life. That former life that she was partaking in for whatever reason, no more. She's on a new path. And I want to ask you, especially for you Christians here, how often do you get overwhelmed? How often do you get overwhelmed? We watched, uh, what's that new Pixar movie? Inside Out. Dude, my wife and I were bawling in that movie. And we were both trying to hide it, but I look at her, she was crying, I was crying, because we got a little daughter, and so we were making the, the association there. But there was just, like, I was trying to hold it in. It's like, the more you hold it in, the more it comes out, you know? So people are looking at me all strange because I'm bawling, and I'm a big dude, so they're like, what's this guy bawling at a Pixar movie for? All of them actually do that. I don't know why. But, um, man, I was bawling at this movie, and I just recognize sometimes I get overwhelmed by some of the silliest things. I mean, when I'm watching basketball and I see a dunk, I just gotta go crazy. I just go crazy. The emotion comes out. But does the emotion come out when you think about Jesus forgiving you of all your sins? Past, present, future? No matter what you did, no matter who you are, no matter what you are engaged in, if you've been forgiven, you've been set free. You have redemption, justification, a promise of eternal life with God forever. No condemnation rests over your head. Does that overwhelm you? How do you respond to that truth, gospel truth, that all of your sins have been forgiven? How do you do that, Christian? Do you, do you get overwhelmed? She was overwhelmed. She knew that her behavior dishonored God. She knew that she was doing horrible things. She knew that she was idolizing herself and idolizing other people. And yet, when you receive God's forgiveness, there has to be a response. There has to be a willingness to respond to that great grace. The realization of the forgiveness of your sins should produce love, gratitude, and worship. Let me say that again. The realization of the forgiveness of your sins should produce love, gratitude, and worship. And it's the exact opposite of what Jesus got from Simon, the religious guy, the spiritual guy, the guy who knows his Bible. Let's see this. As she's standing behind him, she notices that Jesus' feet had never even been washed. So you know that this is a, a customary thing for you to do. When someone comes into your house, in the, in, in the first century, you wash their feet. It seems a little weird, like even your feet I'm looking at right now, um, they don't look too bad, man. I, well, I wouldn't touch them, but they, they don't look bad. But you're walking around in the dirt all day, you're stepping on donkey dew and all this other stuff, that's pretty disgusting. So when anyone would come into a house, man, let me wash your feet. They, they've prided themselves on hospitality. So Simon, he should have washed Jesus' feet, especially because it's Jesus, right? Man, you got this rabbi, he's popular, he's well-known, people love him, 
he's coming to your house, you didn't even bother to wash the guy's feet. And if you're eating a meal, how do, how do they eat meals? Remember, they're lying down, right? So I don't want your stinky feet next to my burrito. Like, well, let me wash your feet. They didn't wash Jesus' feet. So when she comes, she sees, and I think she's actually insulted and for him. Man, this, this guy didn't even perform this gesture to Jesus, didn't wash his feet. She's probably just stunned. How disgraceful for the host to completely ignore and neglect, and neglect the washing of the feet, especially when you consider that even the lowliest person would have that done for them. Well, what does she do? She does what the host is supposed to do. Look at verse 38 with me. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. The text literally says that she was raining tears. They were just flooding out, coming out. The Greek word is blepo. It's a flood of tears that are coming out. And she's responding to this forgiveness of sins with this great emotion. And it says that she let her hair down and she started wiping his feet with her hair. She didn't have time to go look for a towel. She just she wanted to wash his feet with her hair. And ladies, you, you need to understand this. Like That's a big no-no in first century, right? You let your hair down, divorce. Man, how would that be? Let your hair down, you get a divorce? But you let your hair down, that, that's a sign of shame. That's a sign of disrespect. She doesn't care about all that stuff. She's having, an, she's having an encounter with Jesus. So in everyone else's eyes, that's shameful. In Jesus' eyes, this is precious. She, could, she couldn't care less what other people thought of her because she was engulfed in this act of love. And when his feet were clean, the text says that she began kissing his feet. We just went to Hume Lake. How many of you guys went to Hume Lake? We were there the same week that you were, okay? Did you guys do the washing of the feet? There was an option for, for us to do washing of the feet. And at first I was like, I don't know if I want to do that, man. I don't want to get close to these guys' feet. But it was a, it was a great experience. I'll wash your feet. I'm not going to kiss your feet, okay? Um, she's kissing his feet, but they're not like little pecks. The sweet thing about this is the way that Luke describes it, it's kataphileo. It's the same word that's used of the prodigal son. Remember when the father sees the son from afar? And when they make eye contact, and what does the father do? He goes and he runs to the son. And it says that he falls on his neck and he starts kissing him. Oh, he missed his son. His son was lost and now he's found. And so he's expressing his love, his affection to his son by kissing his feet. That's the same thing that's going on right now. She is down at his feet and she is just adoring Jesus. That is what the forgiveness of sins does. She is adoring him, kissing him, embracing him, cherishing him, clinging to him. Kissing one's feet is a deep sign of reverence and respect. And while she's down at his feet, she pours out the perfume, again, which is just a sweet act of worship. This is what seen clearly will do. It sounds a little strange. Where, where's Jesus? I, I, I might do that to him if he were here, but he's not here, so I can't really express my love and gratitude. Why not? If you do it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. 
If you treat one another like that, you're doing that to me. Think about that. There's a lot of Jesus here for you to love and show affection to and to serve and to, to demonstrate your gratitude for the forgiveness of your sins. But this is what seeing clearly does and spiritual blindness will not allow this. Simon was blind. The sinner was lavishing all this love on Jesus, but the religious leader, he treated him with very little regard. He didn't wash his feet, which means he didn't show Jesus any respect. He didn't give Jesus a kiss, which was normal for a greeting. He didn't show any affection. He didn't provide oil for blessing, which means he didn't honor him at all. All these things were expected by the host, but nothing was given. No love, no gratitude, no honor shown. But when we look at the woman, she's washing, she's crying, she couldn't stop embracing and kissing, she's pouring out expensive perfume, and this right here is one of the greatest demonstrations of a response to the gospel in all of the scriptures. This scene is precious to me. You know, I cry when I watch Pixar movies. Sometimes I cry just reading my Bible. That's how powerful it is. It moves me because it's so sweet. I think it's beautiful. I get emotional just reading it, thinking about it. But Simon... He saw something totally different. Look at this. Did he see the woman? In verse 39, it says he saw her. Adon is the word used. But Adon is a superficial glance. Yeah, I saw what was going on. I didn't like it. It was a dirty prostitute touching on his feet. Jesus asked later, though, in verse 44, do you see this woman? You read in the English, it's C and C. But in Greek, it's Adon, superficial glance. When Jesus says, do you see this woman? It's blepo. But do you really see what's going on here, Simon? Are you looking past the exterior and looking at the heart? Do you see this expression, this, this act of love, this act of worship? Do you see what she's doing here? Can, do you comprehend it? Do you understand it? That's what he's asking. Not just do you see her, but do you really, really see What's going on? Because Simon, he didn't see this interruption as an act of worship. He just thought it was occasion to pass judgment on Jesus. This wannabe prophet. All Simon saw was a prostitute, a known one at that. She just disgracefully let her hair down. She's wiping his feet, touching his feet, kissing his feet. And she's doing it with her filthy prostitute hands. And so verse 39, this is what Simon says. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this guy were really a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. There's two observations to point out. The first is, he doesn't have the nerve to say this out loud. The text says he says it to himself. The second thing is, he doesn't accuse Jesus of knowing the prostitute. He accuses him of, not knowing that she is a prostitute, which I find a little fascinating because he's looking for dirt on Jesus. I would think, man, if a prostitute's touching Jesus' feet, then maybe, maybe those two had something going on. But how can you accuse someone who is so perfect, so holy, so gentle, so meek? No, he's, he's saying, no, this can't be a prophet. 
because prophets are from God. God reveals truth. And this Jesus didn't know the truth about the woman. And so therefore, in his logic, he can't be a prophet. He cannot be from God. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 40, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. I find this ironic and I find it hilarious because what's Simon's argument? This guy can't be a prophet. He says it to himself. And it says, Jesus answered him. How do you answer someone when you don't hear what they're saying? So he's accusing him of not being a prophet. Dude, you have no idea. Do you not know that I can read every thought in your mind? Do you not know that I created you? I mean, he could have said all kinds of stuff. I would have let him have it. <laughs> but he says, uh, but the text says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And then he tells this parable in verse 41. A moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Now, let's do some math real quick. I'm not good at it, but this is easy to understand. 500 denarii is about 500 days of work. Okay, so you work for about a year and a half. All of your money, you've lost that. You owe that. And you probably owe it with interest. That's a big debt. There's another guy who owes 50. It's really not a complicated theologic question. It's simple math. One guy has an extra zero, so it means that he owes 10 times as much. But both can't pay. But the guy graciously forgives them both. So the question, which one of them will he love more? And it's an easy answer. Obviously the one who's forgiven more. See, the parable was intended to help Simon see the spiritual reality behind the story. You have a money letter, a money lender, that's God. You have a debt, which is sin. You've got two debtors, which depict different levels of sinners. You have the one who owes less, that pictures the Pharisee. And then you have the one that owes more, and that represents the woman. The point is that the forgiving of the debt demands a response. If you're forgiven much, you should love much. And if you're forgiven little, you'll love little. So let me ask you this question. For those of you that have been forgiven of your sins, how much sin were you really forgiven of? Have, have you talked to people and say, oh, I've been a Christian my whole life. What does that mean? Well, I think sometimes they think that means they haven't sinned a whole lot. I really didn't. I mean, I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't having sex. So I'm like, not that bad of a sinner. Is that, is that true? Are we just little sinners here? I used to think that people who lived crazy sinful lives and then came to salvation later on in adulthood, those were the ones that were really in love with Jesus. You hear these like crazy testimonies. If I told you my whole testimony, you'd be like, whoa, that's pretty crazy. You used to do that stuff? Mm-hmm. You name it. Sell drugs, have sex. That's not even the worst part. For 20 years of my life, I lived a very, very sinful life. But you know what I found out? I got to the master's college, and here I am, this guy that has been forgiven all this sin, and I'm rooming with a dude who every morning would get on his knees and pray at 5. I didn't get up at 5 for anything. I might get up like at 5.30 to play some basketball, but never 5 to, to do anything, especially pray. But here's a guy who's been saved all his life, and he would get on his face, and he would pray, and he would worship with his hands out, and he would, he would read his Bible all the time, 
And then he just seemed like he was so in love and enthralled with Jesus. And it was like, dude, what, what in the world? You grew up in a Christian home and it's not like you had sin like me. Here's the key. It's how much you recognize, realize your sin that will make the difference. See, because I know that I've been forgiven a lot of sin, but again, I put those blinders on and I forget so easily. Our hearts are prone to wonder, right? We forget about how much sin we've committed, how much we've dishonored God, especially if you're a Christian. Bearing the name of Christ, not living anything like a Christian. So when we talk about sin, man, we've got tons of it. 20 years of my life as a wretched sinner, but that doesn't automatically mean I'm going to love Jesus more than you. The truth is, it's the person who realizes the depth of their sin. As we get closer and closer to Jesus, we see just how sinful we are. It's the person who understands that their sin, personally, is what put Jesus on the cross. It's the person who thinks about this often and is overwhelmed with the grace and forgiveness of God who will demonstrate, who will show much love. If you don't recognize your sin, you won't respond like this. So here's the comparison in verse 44. Jesus, he turns to the woman and he said, Simon, do you see this woman? And this is emphatic. Dude, I entered your house. This is your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. I don't want you to miss this, high school students. The anointing, the tears, the demonstration of love, they were all a result of great forgiveness. She had received this forgiveness, and now this is her response that we see. This is an act of worship. It's an act of love. Simon said himself, the one who is forgiven much will love much. And that's exactly what we see her doing here. She's expressing these things to Jesus, her love, her joy, her gratitude, her affection for being forgiven of her sins. I just want to conclude with this. I needed to hear this at your age because I overlooked it. I didn't really want to have the eyes to see that the Lord is ready and willing to forgive you of the multitude of your sins. I don't know what kind of things that you're involved in. I don't know where your heart is at. I don't know if you're resistant to the gospel, resistant to Christ. I don't know if this is just a bunch of bull to you. But the reality is is that you humble yourself, you recognize that you're a sinner, you admit your need for salvation, man, God will swoop down and act quickly and he will save you. He will redeem your soul from death. He will give you eyes to see, ears to hear. He'll spark in your heart a newness. He'll flip on the switch so you can see Jesus for the beautiful Savior he is. So I just encourage you, as we close our time right now and as I pray and we break off into some small groups and you go about your night, if you have yet to recognize, man, I am a sinner, I do need Jesus, if you've yet to recognize that your sin has put him on the cross and he did that for you, man, don't leave tonight without really considering that. 
talking to somebody and praying for the Lord to change your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. Man, I love you because you are so beautiful and so gracious and so compassionate. And I see in all these stories, Lord, you have power, power to heal, power to comfort, power to do way more beyond what we can expect or imagine. And so for those of us, Lord, that have responded in faith to you, we recognize that we don't show you the kind of love and honor and respect and affection that you deserve. But we want that to change, Lord. We want you to move in us, stir in us, to produce gratitude that demonstrates itself in good works and obedience and faithfulness and loving our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we want to surrender our lives to you. And so we pray that you would work in us by the power of your Spirit, that you would keep our hearts from being hard, that you would shape them and mold them and make them soft and make them quick to obey. And for those that are sitting here, Lord, and they've yet to bow the knee, they've yet to repent from their sin, they've yet to recognize that they are proud, that they do think they can do this on their own, I pray, Lord, that you would break down that wall, that you would start to strip away that pride, that you would help them to see that Jesus is worth giving our all for, that he is that pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in a field, that he is worth it. Jesus, you are worth it. I love you. And I praise you this evening for your goodness to us and for the power of your word. And may you use it now to convict hearts, to encourage hearts, and to draw more people to yourself. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.